You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. This is green and gold history. 50-plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. The world champion. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. It's time for a little Green and Gold History here on A's Cast and A's Cast Live with David Feldman. Feldy, how are you? I'm good, Tony. How are you hanging in there? Uh, I would love like a, you know, I would do like an eight-year... $275 million deal. I think I would find something like that. Yeah. I like, I take either the Mookie Betts deal, the Bryce Harper deal. And then if I'm really feeling strong, I'm going to ask for the Mike Trout deal. Like what does Mike Trout's paycheck look like? Oh my God. You imagine. I mean, they, I do imagine. <laughs> Cause they only get paid during the baseball season. Correct. So, I mean, and he's getting like, Paychecks. So I can't even imagine what how many zeros on that thing. Yeah, because you get paid twice a month. I mean, that's I can't even do the math. That's unreal. <laughs> unreal. I mean, like at some point, you know, it's like it's like when people like criticize Christian Yelich and they're like, Well, you know, he could have signed for a lot more. I'm like, what? I mean, he's he's getting over two hundred million. I mean, like seriously, like really? You're really worried about Chris? He likes playing in Milwaukee. Uh, he, he enjoys it there. He enjoys the teammates. He enjoys the town. Uh, his family likes it. And they're giving you over 200 million. I don't feel like a guy is getting gypped when he's getting over $200 million. No, I mean, you're set. Your children are set. Their children are set. Their children. I mean, you got generations who are going to be financially secure through this one contract and you get to play where you like to play for the team you, you enjoy playing for. It's a win-win. You cannot criticize. When guys take leave a little bit on the table for their own happiness, come on, that that's ridiculous. All righty, top ten free agent signings in Oakland A's history, uh, but we're going to start with the honorable mention. Yeah, so free agency as we know it basically started after the '76 season. Uh, basically, you had to be a six you know six years in the majors, um, six years service time, and then you could be a free agent. Uh, so we're going to kind of restrict this list to the six-year Major League free agents. We're not going to talk about re-signing or mid-season guys who got released, guys like Dave Stewart who were released in the middle of 1986. So real free agent signings in the offseason and not any like the minor league type or amateur type either. Um, so some of the bad free agent signings that the A's have had, and, and they've had a few. Now, the A's have never been a huge player uh, for the huge money in the offseason free agent signing. but they, they've signed more than you think. Uh, some of the ones who didn't work out were Storm Davis, who they brought back in 1993, Arthur Rhodes to be the closer in 2004, Ben Sheets in 2010, and maybe maybe the worst one, Billy Butler, yeah. uh, the three-year deal in 2015. So those, those, I think, were probably the worst of their free agent signings. And, and it, it's tough when you're, you're an A's team that plays a limited payroll. You can't make free agent mistakes. Um, the most part they did okay, but those those were pretty poor. Billy Butler got twenty million dollars to walk away. Yeah, 
20 That's a mistake. million dollars. All righty. <laughs> number 10. So number 10, uh, you know, this is what the A's have always been good at, is identifying players who maybe other teams are giving up on, but they see something. Or maybe someone who's injured, and they can take advantage of that and bring them in. And this is what they did in 1999 with John Jaha. And John Jaha was a, was a legitimate major league big-time hitter for the Brewers. He spent seven years with the Brewers. 96, he had a huge year. He had 334 bombs, 118 driven in. Uh, this, was, this was your number four hitter. This was a cleanup hitter. Uh, but injuries in 97, 98 uh, just limited him. Uh, he couldn't play through the injuries, and now he's on the open market. And you look back at the 98 A's, and their DHs in 98 were Matt Stairs and Kevin Mitchell. But the A's knew they were going to end up moving Matt Stairs to the outfield. They had a spot there, so they, they weren't bringing back Kevin Mitchell. So they needed a, they needed a DH. And John Jaha just was, was amazing that year. He was healthy the entire year. He was the A's all-star. He had 35 homers, drove in 111. He drew 101 walks. He's a comeback player of the year in the American League. And what a top 10 guy he was. I mean, he just fit into the A's mold. He loved Oakland. He loved the Raiders. Huge Raiders fan. Um, and just was that perfect guy in this 99 team that competed down to the last 10 days in 99 for a wild card spot. And Jaha was a big part of it. Uh, and even, you know, because he was coming off these injuries, the A's weren't paying him a lot of money. Now they actually ended up giving him an extension. Uh, but major shoulder injuries cut short his career. He was down to 33 games in 2000, 12 games in 2001. But you can't take away 1999. And he announced his retirement in the clubhouse in Arlington, Texas, the end of June in, 90, in uh, 2001. And as he's doing this announcement and he finishes up, the entire clubhouse gives him a standing ovation. That's how much they love John Jaha. One of the only Major League Baseball players that had major problems with his thighs. Yeah. Right? That's not something, you know, your hamstrings, hips, uh, you know, I mean, you talk about lower body injuries, knees, ankles, never, I mean, he was a guy who had a thigh problem. It was always very odd. He was, yeah, and he was kind of a, he was a big guy. He definitely had a football player body, a little bigger than a baseball body, and he had huge thighs. And the one thing I think, if, if you were an A's fan in 1999, I don't think you can ever not hear Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne and not think of John Jaha. I mean, it was the perfect walk-up music, and it just, every time to this day, 21 years later, I hear it now, and I think, John Jaha. How about Roy Steele? John Jaha. Oh, the best. <laughs> the best. All right, number nine. Number nine is one probably a lot of people don't think of, but he was a key player in the A's three straight World Series appearances in the late eighties. And that's Ron Hassey. Ron Hassey, you know, at the end of the 87 season, he's a 35 year old backup catcher. Um, you know, really didn't play much in 87. He was with the White Sox. He had 214 with three homers. Uh, but the A's were in the market for a left-handed hitting backup catcher to go with Terry Steinbach. Now the A's had Mickey Tettleton switch hitting catcher, but Tettleton was not good in 87. He hit 194. And they ended up releasing him at the end of spring training in 88 to keep Ron Hassey. Now, Tettleton would become a two-time All-Star, and he went three silver sluggers, and he owed it all to what he called Fruit Loops, which we later know is something a little bit more than Fruit Loops. But the A's decided to keep Ron Hassey, and they brought him in for this purpose. And he 
became a key part of this team, and he's Bob Welch's personal catcher. When Bob Welch started, Ron Hassey caught. It didn't matter who the opposing team was starting. Ron Hassey was going to start. He also came in to catch late in games when Dennis Eckersley was pitching. Uh, and you think about, you know, Kirk Gibson's home run. Uh, Ron Hassey was behind the plate uh, because they brought him in to catch the ninth inning. And that, that was for three years. That's sort of how it worked. And he was very good in the postseason. Uh, he had 323 in 16 postseason games. Just, uh, you know, under the radar, kind of backup catcher becomes a key cog. And then one of my, my favorite Ron Hassey stories is when the A's traded for Ricky Henderson in 89, uh, Ron Hassey's wearing number 24. Well, Ricky wants his number. Ricky 24, Ricky needs to get his number. So they get an exchange, an exchange for the number. Ron Hassey got a new suit, a set of golf clubs, and Ricky had to fill in for him at an autograph signing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you hey, you got to go do that because I hate doing that. Can you, can you imagine the line for Ricky versus Ron Hassey? Imagine going there expecting to see Ron Hassey and getting Ricky. Oh, my. <laughs> all right, number eight. Number eight, uh, he's, he's a favorite of all of ours, right? It's Bartolo Colon yeah, in 2012. I mean, Bartolo, he's 39 years old. Uh, and, you know, he was out of the baseball in 2010, he was in the Dominican. Uh, in 2011, he shows up with the Yankees. He goes 8-10 and 10, uh, with a 4 ERA. Actually, pitches really well against the A's, so the A's have their eye on him. And they needed guys in the rotation. I mean, the rotation after the 2011 season, they had traded Gio Gonzalez to the Nationals to get Tommy Malone. And they traded uh, Trevor Cahill to the D-backs for Jared Parker. So you got a lot of young pitchers right, who might, may or may not be ready. So they bring in Bartolo Colon to go along with Brandon McCarthy. And the A's, they found something, right? He's 10-9 and nine with a 3.43 ERA before the unfortunate suspension, uh, you know, for failed drug tests with testosterone. Uh, but still, the A's don't win the West without the contributions of Bartolo. And the A's re-sign him for 2013. He goes 18-6, a 2.65 ERA and three shutouts. I mean, Bartolo Colon, this was a fine. This was an A's fine. Again, a guy who maybe not is going to get the big money, but who's out there, who's effective, and was a huge part of two A's playoff teams. I will never forget pulling off 66 and listening to the radio when I heard he was suspended. I was like, if you could have lined up everybody in the organization and said, take off your shirts, all right, <laughs> pick who's on PEDs, he's the last guy that ever would have got picked. A hundred percent. And just, but... I mean, there was always some questions about what happened in the Dominican in 2010, where he was doing this sort of new age stem cell stuff with his arm, because he was he had some bad years in, in 08 and 09. So there was something going on. And you find out this is testosterone, which is usually used as a masking agent. Um, so maybe there, you know, something nefarious is happening. But he comes back. I mean, the A still believed in him, and his teammates still believed in him to bring him back in 2013 and have the year that he did. Uh, and then also he goes on to the Mets and he plays well for them and he hits the home run. Just uh, Bartolo Colon, it was a treat to have around. All you need is some Fruit Loops. That's all you need. All right, number seven. <laughs> number seven, Hall of Famer. This is Ricky Henderson. They brought him back two different times as a free agent. Now, remember, they traded for him in 89 to bring him back the first time. Then in 93, they trade him to the Blue Jays 
for Steve Carse and Jose Herrera, and this is in July of 93, but they bring him back as a free agent in 94. And he signs a two-year deal. Actually, it's 300 in 1995. Um, the end of the 95 season was weird. Uh, this was, you know, unfortunately, Wally Haas had passed away. The A's knew they were being sold. Um, the A's end the year in a nine-game losing streak. Uh, Ricky sits out the final six games because he's sort of sitting on a 300 average. Larusa, Sandal Larusa era, he's gone. He's he's mad at Ricky, and he's really mad at Jason Giambi. He benches Giambi for the end of the season because he doesn't think that Giambi's putting in enough work in the gym or anything else. He thinks he's lazy. Benches him for the end of the year. Uh, we know Jason goes on and has a great career, but it was a whole end of 95, which is weird. So Ricky leaves again, but you know, at the end of the 97 season, Ricky actually ends up that season with the Angels. He's a free agent again at 39 years old. The A's need somebody in their outfield. Because uh, you know they were playing guys like Brian Lesher and David Mayshore and Patrick Lennon, they bring Ricky back. Ninety-eight, he leads the AL in walks, in steals, plays 152 games. This is as a 39-year-old. I mean, bringing Ricky back those two two extra times, and this is again a Hall of Famer. And he was so key for the A's. So you think about Ricky, four different stints with the A's, and two times as a free agent. Great Ricky. I'm surprised he's number seven. Number six. Number six. Well, he had to make the list. They made a movie about it. And that's Scott Hatterberg. <laughs> right? I, you make a movie about it, you got to make the list. And, you know, if you've read Moneyball and you kind of know the history of this, but here's Scott Hatterberg, who's a, I said it like Ken Maka there, Hatterberg. Uh, he's a, you know, 32 year old backup catcher. He's been played with the Red Sox. Didn't get a lot of time. He's actually with the, traded to the Rockies. The Rockies don't tender him, so he's, he's a free agent. Uh, the A's are coming off a year where they've lost Jason Giambi. They've lost Johnny Damon. Um, they traded for Carlos Pena. They traded for David Justice. But they had their eyes set on Scott Hatterberg because they loved his on-base percentage. And they could get him for very little money. Um, and, it, and it works out. Right? In 2002, it's 280. Now, if you've seen the movie, it looks like Scott Hatterberg's playing first base from day one. That's not true. Carlos Pena was there to be the first baseman, and Hatterberg was going to be the DH. He actually didn't even play his first game at first until May 11th. He didn't become the everyday first baseman until June. Um, but in those even years with the A's, he was very good. Um, in 2002, he had a 116 OPS plus. In 2004, he had a 106 OPS plus. This was that, that hidden gem that the A's were going to become known for, right? And finding something that's not valued by other teams at that time and taking advantage of it. And Scott Hatterberg was that guy. And it really worked out for an A's team that, you know, was in contention all four years that he was part of this team. Yeah, if you watched the movie, he should have been the MVP of the league. Well, you know, in some measures, a team of nine Scott Hatterbergs would win every game. Hey, Wash, it's easy to play first base. No, it isn't. <laughs> It's incredibly hard. <laughs> Number five. Number five is a guy we've talked about a lot, and this is uh, Dave Kingman in 1984. And this is, you know, the DH had been around for, for 10 seasons now. And, and the DH rule, especially there in the 80s, it was for the aging slugger who could not play in the field. And it was, it was made for somebody like Dave Kingman. And you look back in 83, the A's pretty much regular DH was Jeff Burroughs. He's a former AL MVP in 1974, but this is 10 years later. 
and he hits 10 home runs. And he was really not a factor offensively. They also used Mitchell Page, who had no home runs. Uh, they were getting nothing out of the DH. And they had nobody really in mind. And they contact Dave Kingman at the end of spring training in 1984. And he comes along. Now, he had played for the Mets uh, in 83, but he only hit 198 and 13 homers. But this guy can hit home runs. Put him in there. And he does that with the A's. He hits 30 home, 35 homers the first year, then 30, then 35. He still has the A's record for home runs by a DH uh, for a career, which is 98. Chris Davis is, is knocking on the door there. But really finding a Dave Kingman in that era for that DH role was just perfect. King Kong. And what, what was he? The USC Trojan. He, was he like 6'6 six, six or 6'7? Six, yeah, yeah, he was he was six. I think he was six six. And at USC, much like McGuire, he pitched and he played third base. And as a pitcher, he was he was terrifying, is what I've heard from from players who were around then. That he he was tall and threw the ball hard and had no idea where it was going. Yeah, much like his buddy Randy Johnson. Uh, I got to tell you, when you were a little kid, he seemed so massive. It was uh, unbelievable. All right, number four. Number four, one of my favorite guys, another guy we've talked about a lot, but this is the A's really just hitting pay dirt, and that's Frank Thomas in 2006. Uh, you, you look back at 2005, and the A's were contention down to the end. Their main DHs were Scott Hattieberg, who, again, now he's a free agent, the A's aren't going to bring him back, and Arubio Durazo, end of his career. So the A's need, they need somebody in that spot, in that DH spot. And Frank, you know, he's 38 years old. Uh, barely played in 2004, barely played in 2005. He's got foot injuries. It looks like his career's over. But he ends up meeting Billy Bean at the winter meetings, and they, they had a connection. And for Frank Thomas, he said, if I'm not going to re-sign with the White Sox, the A's are my first choice. I want to go play for Billy Bean. And, you know, he passes all the physicals, and the A's sign up for very little. They should give him a one-year $500,000 deal. But $2.6 million in incentives. And the incentives were based on plate appearances and just being on the roster. So it was, you know, no risk for the A's, very little money. And if he's healthy, well, he's going to produce. Well, he was healthy for the first month and a half, but he wasn't producing. He was hitting 178, only seven homers on May 20th. So then the A's go to Chicago, his return to Chicago, the fans there give him a standing ovation. He feels that he hits two home runs that game. And then the rest of the year, he's, he's Frank Thomas. He's Hall of Famer, Frank Thomas. He's 302 for the rest of the year, 32 homers. He finishes fourth in the MVP, um, 39 homers total on the year, just and did Hall of Fame things, right? The A's are down late. He hits a home run. Game one of the ALDS against Johan Santana, the best pitcher on the planet that year, he hits a home run. It's just Frank Thomas, Hall of Famer doing Hall of Fame things. I just, that was, you know, the A's had tried this, right? Trying to find these type of guys. Um, you know, they've done a, they kind of Frank Thomas, they, they thought we could, we could find this and, and Mike Piazza in 2007 and it didn't work out. They tried it with Mike Sweeney, didn't work out, but they hit pay dirt with Frank Thomas. No doubt about it. Number three. Number three is, you know, it's going to go down as one of the all timers for the days. And that's Coco Chris. Uh, Coco. I may signed him for the 2010 season. And he's a guy who would play a lot for Cleveland and the Red Sox. He won a World Series with the Red Sox in Kansas City. But again, he's limited to 49 games in 2009 because of a right shoulder problem. Um, so the market kind of is not there for him. 
And the A's center field situation was just sort of a mess. In 2009, they had Roger Davis, Brian Sweeney, Scott Harrison. Uh, so they signed him to a one-year deal with an option. Um, and Coco comes in, and his first year with the A's doesn't go very well because he breaks his uh, pinky finger in the Bay Bridge series in the preseason games. And he's basically injured all year. But he sticks it out. And he signs two more extensions with the A's. He plays seven years all-time with the A's. Great year in 2013. 22 homers, 93 runs, 21 steals. He's fourth in Oakland history with 169 steals. His stolen base percentage of 84.5 is second to only Stan Javier. Uh, and the thing about Coco and signing those extensions is Coco wanted to be on the Oakland A's. Uh, at that time, he could have gone off. He had, he, his stock had risen again. He could be a player, but he chose to stay with the A's. And, you know, really paid off again in those three postseason appearances, having Coco as their center fielder. I think that is one reason why we'll always love him, because that was a time where there were a lot of people, uh, Josh Willingham, they're like, I want to be here. And they couldn't get out of here fast enough. Coco wanted to be an A. He wanted to be on the West Coast. He liked that he could get on a quick Southwest flight, go down to L.A. with his family, or they could come up here. Coco wanted to be an A. Billy Bean, it's his twins' favorite player. I, it was just such a great match, and I, I think we'll always love him as an A because he 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 loved it here and um, uh, loved doing shows with him. Really good dude. All right, number two. Number two was a big part of the A's World Series in '89, and that was Mike Moore. And he signed Mike Moore to join the rotation of Dave Stewart, Bob Welch, Storm Davis, and Kurt Young. Uh, you know, Mike Moore was the first overall pick in the '81 draft by the Mariners. He was the first right-handed starting pitcher ever taken number one. Um, but the A's were able to jump on him because his Mariner numbers weren't great, right? He, he had a he played for a bad team, so his record never looks that good. And the A's said, we're going to take advantage of this because we think, and Dave Duncan was a big part of this, we can teach him the forkball. And we can give him that third pitch to go with a fastball, to go with a very nasty slider. But if we can give him the fork ball, we can turn him into an all-star, and that's what they did. All right, 19-11 and 89, he was 3-0 in the postseason. He was great in 91 uh, when he went 17-8. and And this was when he was really able to compete in the free agent market because that team was willing to spend money. I mean, the 1998s had the highest payroll in baseball. Uh, they were the, the Haas family. They were willing to spend. And this was, again, but locating a guy who, because of his record, Pitching for the Mariners wasn't good, but they saw the talent behind that, and they were able to take advantage of it and bring them in and bring the A's a world championship. All right, and we're down to number one, the number one free agent signing for the Oakland Athletics. That's Dave Henderson before the 1988 season. Uh, Hendu, who was, you know, had come up with the Mariners in 82, uh, but never really had a chance to play every day in center field for the Mariners. Um, Dick Williams, who was a manager at the time for the Mariners, uh, wasn't a big fan of Hendu. But, you know, Hendu gets to the Red Sox. He has the big moments in the playoffs in the World Series. Uh, he ends the 87 season with the Giants, and that was just sort of out there. But the A's need a center fielder. In 87, they had Dwayne Murphy, who was, was, was going to leave the A's at this point, Luis Polonia, San Javier. They wanted somebody who could patrol center and take over. Uh, Dave Henderson signed. He wins the center field job in spring training and never looks back. Uh, you know, in 88, he's 304 with 24 homers. These were 23-1 and one when he homered in 1988. Uh, and then he just stayed with the A's through the 93 season. 
you know, you get two fan clubs out there in the bleachers. You had Hindu Land and Hindu's Bad Boys Club. Uh, Hindu was part of the Oakland A's. And, you know, again, so sad that he left us so early, but his time in Oakland, that was a brilliant signing by the A's. It was always great interviewing him. I mean, he was one of those guys that, you know, always happy, always energetic, the way he played. And then, you know, even when he was done in the fantasy camps uh, where they where they mix the A's and the Mariners, it's just, uh, yeah, it is sad that he is gone. But what just what a treat he was. You know, and, and I, I know I've told this before. It's my favorite Dave Henderson story. So 89 World Series, uh, the A's win game one and two, um, but Hendu goes 0 for 6. And so before game three, and, and this is before the earthquake uh, postponed that game. So before that game, they're interviewing players, and they go to Dave Henderson, and they said, how worried are you? You're, you're 0 for 6. And he's like, 0 for 6? I go 0 for 6 all the time. Great. I mean, just a brilliant perspective on the whole thing. He, he was never rattled. You'd see him in the batter's box, and you kind of take a breath, a deep breath before the pitch came. So clutch. Uh, Henderson, Hendu, perfect. All right. Go down the top 10 once again. All right, free agent signing, mid-off-season free agent signings. Number 10 was John Jaha. Number 9, Ron Hassey before the 88 season. Number 8, Bartolo Colon. Number 7, Ricky Henderson, twice in 94 and 98. Number 6, Scott Hatterberg. So good they made a movie about it. Number 5, Dave Kingman. Number 4, Frank Thomas. Number 3, Coco Crisp. Number 2, Mike Moore. And the number 1 off-season free agent signing, Dave Henderson. Great stuff as always. We appreciate it, and we'll be talking to you soon. Be safe to you and your family and your parents, and uh, uh, take care. All right. You too, Townie. Great catching up. The great Dave Feldman right here on A's Cast and A's Cast Live, Green and Gold History. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.